Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is a podcast where we have a biblical conversation about the crazy world in which we live. Why a biblical conversation? Well, God's Word enables us to make sense of our existence and not merely to survive, but to thrive in this broken, fallen, and often confusing world in which we live. So join us over the next 20 to 25 minutes as we provide you a bird's eye view perspective of some complex issue challenging our culture, the church, and you as we apply God's word to make sense of it all. And at the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources, and this time we've got a few, for further study in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. We are in what I call season two of this podcast uh, about the coming persecution. I know it sounds dramatic, but it's really not. There is persecution headed our way. It may come at a a different speed than we might anticipate. It may come more slowly. It may come more quickly. But this episode, episode 013, is our final installment of season two, The Coming Persecution. And I've entitled this one, What Now? What Next? It's going to be a combination of a history lesson, a book review, and an action plan. All right. That sounds like fun. So... What now? What next? Well, Mark, we're living in a divided nation and in difficult times, and I'm not just referring to the most recent election. One writer put it far more eloquently than I can, so I just want to read what he wrote. He writes this, Whatever else is true, this much is beyond dispute. Western society in general, and America in particular, is not today what it was a few decades and even a few years ago. The tenets of classical liberalism that built and sustained Western nations are slowly being reframed as the cause of human suffering rather than the solution to it. The Judeo-Christian worldview that informed its morality is being described as the dominant cause of sorrow, suffering, and oppression. Meanwhile, the principles of social justice, a refreshed form of Marxism, are being held up as a superior alternative And this despite a century in which no other ideology caused more pain or destroyed more lives. And as we know, Marxism always, always targets Christians, and it always goes totalitarian. Okay, so what now? What next? Well, what I'm talking about is a very real and, I believe, almost imminent persecution. Yeah, you've talked about this persecution, the coming persecution before, Uh, So what do you think it will look like? Dictatorship? A totalitarian government? Well, you know, Mark, here's the thing. A dictatorship and a totalitarian government are not necessarily the same thing. They do overlap. A dictatorship is usually one-man rule, and he's not always a persecutor. He just wants to control everything. Totalitarian doesn't allow for anything outside of its policy or politics. Everything is political politics is everything. And what's coming our way, maybe not, it won't be something like Russia was, in, at least in the beginning. No, this will be a softer totalitarianism, which is very different than a dictatorship. And our softer totalitarianism will still be coercive. It will be no less effective, but it won't be quite as life-threatening or ex- existential as we've seen in places like Nazi Germany or former Soviet Union, what is now Russia or China or North Korea. Our coercion and its totalitarianism will take place in the workplace and the classroom, and indoctrination will be forced on us in these places, also through media and social media. 
then there'll be some government regulation, executive orders like the things that cause us to shelter in place. But the reality is, it will be different. The enemies of our freedom, who are already closing in at the gates, so to speak, of our society and our church, will not be as over-the-top or as initially obvious as some of the totalitarian governments or dictatorships of the past. And the question is, how will we survive? And I believe that the key to that survival will be not to forget the lessons of the past. You see, those who forget the lessons of the past are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. When we look at the past, our thinking needs to be informed not only by the Word of God, but also by the hard-won wisdom from places like the former Czechoslovakia or East Germany or Cuba or what is now modern-day Russia, what was called the Soviet Union. In these places, while many people succumbed to societal pressures to conform, others suffered along the way but managed to hang on to their integrity, to their dignity, and to their souls. And that's why you hear me talk a lot about Alexander Solzhenitsyn because he was really the type of individual that typified that type of soulful integrity. So in the face of coming persecution, you and I, all of us, need to realize that we may not be able to overthrow or even stop the soft totalitarianism of woke capitalism, the educational establishment, social media, and even the government, but by considering and learning from the examples of those who have suffered before us and applying God's word, we can at least maintain our freedom in the inner man, the inner person, and we can hang on to some integrity, and we can hang on to our faith. And in so doing, we can live and suffer like many of those before us while retaining human dignity without needless grief, regret, and even depression, you might say. So we can live and suffer as Christians in a world and in a culture that is dying from the toxins of a society that is increasingly drowning in myths like like critical theory and spiritual falsehood, but we can survive, we can thrive as Christians. So what does it look like for us to maintain this inner person and maintain this integrity through this persecution? Well, Mark, this involves not losing sight of the truth, not losing sight of your identity in Christ, remembering the past, not losing sight of your history, your cultural memory. In George Orwell's 1984, you read that he who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. And these days, and certainly in the recent past, but even now, Soft totalitarians are trying to rewrite the history of our nation, the history of Western civilization, to reshape minds for the future, and not in the best ways or in the best of reasons. Even today, universities and high schools and middle schools are rewriting history. You think of the uh, bogus 1619 project at the New York Times. And being a dissident and and being part of a dissident community involves hanging on to your past, maintaining a grip on your past with an eye toward the present and an eye toward the future. This will inoculate you and your children and maybe your grandchildren against indoctrination and losing perspective. You see, we have to establish and solidify certain priorities to grasp, to keep hold of who we are and whose we are in Christ. And so what do you do? Well, what I want to do today is go back to an earlier discussion of a book by Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies, and it's based on the ideas that he derived and distilled from an essay by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I, I commend this book to you. I do not recommend its theology so much. There are some problems there. But 
its observations about the past and the steps that were taken in the midst of persecution are very helpful. And I think you can find six priorities there in the book, and let me just share them with you now. Priority number one is to value nothing more than you value the truth. Rod Dreher writes this, You have to live in a world of lies, but it's your choice whether the lie lives in you. The Bible tells us that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, and we cannot be at peace with a world that foists lies upon us. One of the stories in Dreher's book is of a Czech dad who has his uh, seven-year-old son come home from school singing the praises of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic and a separate nation, Slovakia. And the, and the boy was just telling his daddy how, how the Soviets made things so much better for the Czech people. And his father just had to say, wait a minute, sit down. And he told him the story of the Soviet invasion of their country. On the nights of August 20 to 21st in 1968, 200,000 troops from the Warsaw Pact countries of the Soviet Union, Poland, East Germany, and Hungary, and Bulgaria, invaded their country and took it over just because they were normalizing and liberalizing a few things that had been in place since World War II. The Russians threatened to absorb half of their nation into Soviet Russia and divide up the rest of it among some of the Warsaw Pact countries. And so, the father injected truth into the propaganda that his young boy had been listening to. Well, like that dad, we have to connect our children or our grandchildren with the true past, with our true culture, to inoculate them from the indoctrination they're going to be receiving and are receiving now from the educational establishment. A second priority that we have to have is to cultivate or develop a cultural memory. Rodrero writes in the book, Memory, historical and otherwise, is a weapon of cultural self-defense. History is not just what is written in textbooks. History is in the stories we tell ourselves about who we were and who we are. History is embedded in the language we use, the things we make, the rituals we observe. History is culture. Part of the Christian's culture is the Word of God and the history of how saints suffered throughout time and also our own family history. You might want to talk to your kids about, or your grandkids about, their grandparents, about World War II, about the Korean War, about the struggle for freedom against socialist and communist tyranny, against the oppression and persecution of Christians. You might want to let them read for themselves and walk them through our country's founding documents. There's all kinds of literature like the Chronicles of Narnia, Aesop's Fables, the book, you know, Pride and Prejudice, Pilgrim's Progress, books by Mark Twain, good books. J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Ring trilogy, American history. Let them read history books published over 20 years ago. They can listen to podcasts. You have to expose your family to its true cultural history and cultural memory. I remember talking to an educator. She's about, she's put almost 30 years old, and she was talking to me about structural racism and uh, systemic racism in our country. And she talked all about our country's history. And then I shared with her some snippets that I'm going to share right now about our country's history. She was completely historically illiterate. Here she is, a four-year college degree, unaware of the recent history of our country because she had read the 1619 Project, which has now been edited a bazillion times because of all the falsehoods that are in it. And let me just share some of this with you. And I want you to listen well, and I'm going to make this resource available to you on our resource page. But our history is not one of anything like structural or systemic racism. 
Take George Washington, for instance. He was a slave owner, but he freed his slaves, providing them pensions for those who could not provide for themselves and vocational training for slaves under 25 so that they could have a trade. And he left them, again, pensions and land. So let's tear down his statue and expunge all memory of him for being a man of his time. No, he wasn't a perfect man. He was a flawed man who failed to live up to all of his ideals. But he did refuse the third term. He could have become king of America, and he chose not to based on the ideals of freedom that he believed. Thomas Jefferson wanted slavery condemned in the Declaration of Independence. But many people feared losing some of the southern colonies in the war against the British. He referred to slavery as an abominable crime, and yet he owned slaves. Unforgivable. Let's erase all memory of him. Again, what's his problem? He's a flawed man who failed to live up to his ideals, just like everybody today does in one form or another. We have to remember also that slavery never took hold in some states because people opposed it. And people in some of the northern states, some serving as pastors in predominantly white churches, were abolitionists. And some in the 1700s married people of color. Imagine that. But let's condemn everybody in the past as evil and oppressive. And then there's the Civil War. Some call it the war between the states. A death toll of 750,000 men out of a population of 31 million people. That's 2.4% of the total population or as much as 5% of the male population. And what were they fighting for? Among other things, to free the slaves. Why? Were they forced to? No. Slaves, there were maybe three million slaves in the U.S., but they were trying to live up to an ideal of freedom that is in our founding documents. Then there's Gettysburg. 10,000 people killed, 30,000 wounded. The abolition of slavery figured prominently in that war, and these were white men, mostly fighting for the freedom of all people, including the slaves. Abraham Lincoln issued and executed the Emancipation Proclamation, albeit imperfectly. But it was soon followed by the 13th Amendment at the end of the Civil War. What was the 13th Amendment? It granted all rights of citizenship to slaves. It gave them the right to vote. Did that cure things? No, because you have sinful people, flawed people in a nation with high ideals. You have to remember that souls are only changed one at a time with the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing less. But what do we make of these evil white men who passed this legislation? Or weren't they racist? Why did they give the right to vote, the right to own property, all rights of citizenship to these freed slaves? Because it was the right thing to do. And why did they do it? Were they forced to do it by an electorate? No. They did it for a largely powerless and voiceless minority. Then there's 1870, Hiram Revels, the first black U.S. senator elected from Mississippi of all places. And after that, numerous congressmen and congresswomen were elected uh, to the Senate, uh, to the House of Representatives, I'm sorry, and to the Senate of all colors. And that continues to this day. Who elected rebels in 1870? A black man in Mississippi. And after that, the federal government had to frequently step in to ensure voting rights and rights of citizenship. Who took these actions? White men. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. They weren't forced by three million slaves in a population of 31 million people. That's less than 10%. They did it because they were imperfect people trying to live up to an ideal. Let's fast forward a little bit. President Harry S. Truman desegregated the U.S. military by executive order in 1948. 
And he established a commission, a committee to assure the equality of treatment and opportunity in the armed services for people of color. Now, did Truman rely on the black vote? No, he did not. He relied on his conscience. He had been a military man in World War I, and he believed that this segregation was all wrong. Isn't he supposed to have been an evil racist? You tell me. What motivated him? Should we tear down his statues? And then in 1954, for example, uh, the Supreme Court case, Brown versus the Board of Education, a, a decision handed down by white Supreme Court justices, outlawed segregation. And in 1957, President Dwight Eisenhower sent federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas to integrate public high schools and to ensure the safety of the students. Why? I thought everything that happened in the past was evil. See, this is it. We're losing touch of our cultural memory, our cultural history, our cultural heritage. In 1963, federal troops and the Alabama National Guard were deployed to desegregate the University of Alabama, the Alabama National Guard. Why did this happen? Because segregation was wrong. And how could this happen in a country dominated by racism? Because the country, imperfect as it was, imperfect as it is, had a set of ideals, a set of ideals about freedom and equality that it clung to. And that's why in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, tightening and strengthening laws against the discrimination against people based on their race, age, or sex. Now, why would a predominantly white and racist Congress, Senate, and President pass such legislation into law? Who elected them? Who re-elected them? That's the point. While this country is far from perfect, it is not a racist country. It is not systemically racist or structurally racist. And that's why white men in 1967 appointed the first black Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. And that's why Clarence Thomas, the second African-American Supreme Court Justice, was appointed by another white man. There have been black Supreme Court Justices for over 53 years in the United States. Appointed by whom? And what was their motive? They wanted to do the right thing. President Ronald Reagan in 1987 appointed the first African-American National Security Advisor, Colin Powell. Colin Powell was later appointed in 1989 by George H.W. Bush as the first African-American Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman. Presidents Nixon and Reagan integrated the space program. They made sure that blacks, Asians, and Hispanics, and women could serve as astronauts. Why? Because it was right. And don't forget, Barack Obama was elected president twice in 2008 and 2012 at a time when black people, people of color, Afri African-American people, made up roughly 13% of the U.S. population. So who were these voters who voted to elect President Obama twice? Well, they were white people. They were Hispanic people. They were African-American people. They were Asian people. They were people of all shapes and sizes in an America that was not and is not structurally racist or systemically racist. Between 1964 and 2014, our country spent 15 to $22 trillion on the war on poverty. Now, who elected all these politicians? Where did they come from? And why did they commit so many financial resources when barely 14% of the electorate was black or African-American? What's my point? It's my point is this. 
if America as a country didn't care about all people, then why did the country do the things it has done to assure the freedom and equality of people of all races from all walks of life? Now, does this country live out its ideals perfectly? No, it does not. Has it? No, it has not. Do you? Nobody listening to the sound of my voice does. Do you or I live out our faith perfectly? No, because we're fallen creatures. And so this is where you have to cling to your cultural memory or cultural history. Wow. So where did you get all of this history? You know what, Mark? I got it from Wikipedia. And Wikipedia is by no means a tremendous source. But you know what? Google it. Or better yet, use a different search engine. It's all there. Anybody can look it up for themselves if they want to. And the fact of the matter is, even in our woke culture where people are rewriting history, they can't rewrite it all fast enough. And so I'm going to put this short summary that I just gave you all, this historical lesson on the resource page. So understanding the truth and knowing what that's about and then understanding our history. So what else should we be doing to prepare ourselves uh, for this coming persecution? Well, knowledge is power. That's for sure. And that's where you have to know the truth and the truth will set you free, as Jesus said. And that's where you have to keep in touch with who you are, your cultural history and your cultural memory. But the other thing you have to do, too, and it would be the third priority, is to see your family as the primary means of resistance. After all, family is the foundation of a stable society and a stable culture. Dreher writes this in his book, Live Not By Lies. In the coming soft totalitarianisms, Christians will have to regard family life in a much more focused and serious way. The traditional Christian family is not merely a good idea. It is also a survival strategy for the faith in a time of persecution. Dreher writes, Christians should should stop taking family life for granted, instead approaching it with a more thoughtful and in a more disciplined way. You know, today, there's a lot of people who just, their family is scattered in different directions and nobody's keeping up with anybody. But with what's coming down the pike, whether it's coming in months or years, you have really got to invest in your family. You've got to be intentional. And you know, today, you have people who are involved in so-called family churches, who many of whom are just trying to escape accountability and they're a little on the unruly side. But the reality is, for the right reason, the family may become the church of the future because of persecution, because it will be difficult to gather together. So what we have to do in our family is to prepare for and plan to accept hardship, to rethink educational and career options, to to strengthen our family bonds. Wait, what do you mean that we need to rethink our education and career options with our children? Well, when you look at the past in countries, again, like Czechoslovakia, or the Soviet Union, China, places like that, you have to anticipate exclusion from certain professions, uh, discrimination from educational opportunities. You're going to be excluded from all kinds of places that we take for granted now. Educational privilege was rewarded in the past upon compliance and ideological purity with the Czechoslovakian Communist Party or or the Russian Communist Party. Uh, Amnesty International reported in 1980 that socialist and Marxist institutions used to rank applicants for university and other opportunities according to a sort of a social uh, credit score, much like you see in China today. 
and they wanted to know who their parents were, what their parents' involvement in the party was, and were these kids good communists. And those who weren't did not get into uh, university. They were excluded. Children of dissidents were effectively disqualified. When I was teaching uh, pastors, I spent a little bit of time training pastors in the former Soviet Union. They talked about this quite a bit. And so what did they do? What could you do? You couldn't get into university. You couldn't get into medical school. You couldn't you were just cut out from all this. You couldn't get certain jobs. And what they had to do and what may become necessary here over time is the acquisition or the development of certain marketable hard skills. Electricians, plumbers, mechanics of various kinds, diesel and automotive mechanics, HVAC technicians, truck drivers, that's what they did. Stonemasons, they were able to have hard marketable skills that they could earn money with that were needed. Uh, it's not like, you know, feminist studies and gender studies. These were things that were useful. Even today, a plumber can expect to start at around 30 to $50 an hour. He's going to earn over $7,000 a year in overtime uh, and with no college debt. An electrician, also 30 to $50 an hour, depending on where he lives. And he's going to average closer to $10,000 a year in overtime. And so these skills, they're barterable. You know, you, you can barter with them. Uh, you can do it, make it in cash if it becomes necessary under intense persecution. And everybody needs electricians. Everybody needs mechanics. And these are skills, they used to call them trade school skills, that you can acquire and survive on. Um, and so beyond education, what should we be doing to get ready? Well, you need to get ready in your workplace. I mentioned the social credit score in China, which is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, as it says in Ecclesiastes 1.9. Uh, you go back to the former Soviet Union. You go back to Nazi Germany. Uh, you go back to Venezuela, Cuba, these places. Your company will not be like a dictatorial government, but they're going to have their own version of uh, uh, social credit score. It will be uh, probably evaluated through HR or, or Department of Diversity, Inclusiveness, and Equity, or your own diversity director. And, and promotions and opportunities will be at risk or at stake, uh, depending on your activities as an anti-racist or, you know, whatever. You know, if you're not an anti-racist, you have to be a racist. Well, there's no middle ground there. Well, that's not true. An anti-racist is somebody who demonstrates and, and c commits acts of property damage and violence. Oh, yeah, I don't want to be that. And Christians don't want to be that. But what's going to happen is you're going to become evaluated for promotion based on these things, based on the seminars you attend, based on the things that you will be forced or coerced into affirming. And so you've got to, th you've got to plan for that. You've got to think about that. So it sounds like this is something that the whole family needs to think about. Uh, parents, kids, the whole unit. Yeah, I'm speaking to parents, to grandparents, to grandchildren, to children, Christian families, which really brings us now to a fourth priority. You need to understand that your faith is the only real basis for resistance. Again, we're going to end up being dissidents. We're not going to be rioting. We're not going to be breaking things. We're not going to be out in the streets fighting the police, but we're going to be resisting intellectually, spiritually. Our faith is what is going to anchor us. It's objective. It's transcendent truth. Dreher writes that a creed one holds as a statement, not of one's subjective feelings, but a description of objective reality 
He writes that this is a priceless possession. It tells you how to discern truth from lies. It tells your kids how to discern truth from lies. And for those whose creed is Christianity, then in the face of ubiquitous hatred and cruelty, faith is the evidence, the true truth, the real reality is the eternal love, power, and sovereignty of God and our reliance upon him. So you need to understand that your faith is the only real basis for resistance. In the end, God is sovereign. God is good. And his character assures us that he will take care of us and that even what befalls us has a higher and better purpose. Which brings us to also priority number five. Now more and more than ever, we have to stop neglecting the church. Another writer puts it this way. Stand in solidarity with like-minded people. You need the church and the church needs you. Drerer writes, what the experience of the church under communism is, and a discerning read of the signs of the times today is, tells us that all Christians of every church should start forming small groups, cell groups, not simply to deepen their faiths and their spiritual lives, but to train them in active and real resistance. Because only in solidarity with others can we find the spiritual and communal strength to resist, to stand up under, to weather persecution. That kind of brings us to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. You know, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some do, but, so, but gather together to stimulate one another to love and to good works, particularly as you see the day approaching. Now, the day there, it talks about the day of the Lord, but I would also say you could apply that to the day of persecution. You need fellowship and community with like-minded families, like-minded playmates, like-minded peers for your kids, comfort during persecution. The Czech families, after they'd come back from a beating, would stop in with members of their church and, and find comfort and consolation there. The same was true of Russian families, Russian Baptists, Cuban families, Chinese families. We live in an age right now, with because as I'm speaking right now, we are in uh, the purple hierarchy here in California of uh, COVID-19 sheltering indoors, and we're forced to leave church again, to not meet indoors. And I've heard people talking about how much they enjoy pajama church, or, you know, they can do chores and listen to church on television or online. That's not what church is. That's not what church is about. We need each other. We need human contact because the days ahead are difficult. Yeah, that's a really strong point, Keith. Is there anything else that we should be doing well, last and not least, call this priority six from Dreher's book. It is this, and this doesn't sound much fun. Accept suffering as a gift. Accept suffering as a gift. Dreher writes this, To recognize the value of suffering is to rediscover a core teaching of historical Christianity and to see clearly the pilgrim path walked by every generation of Christians since the Twelve Apostles. There is nothing more important than this when building up a Christian resistance to the coming totalitarianism. You know, Christians have always been persecuted. We've always been in one manner or another, one form or another, subject to a, to a surveillance culture because people want to know that we really believe what we say we believe. And that's why, you know, we read this. Uh, I had friends who grew up under communism in China and Russia and what they and their parents suffered and how... They held it together because of the faith, because they embraced the suffering. They didn't run from it. They didn't run to it. They weren't looking for crazy martyrdom like the Islamic terrorists do today. 
They were just trying to hang on to their God and their belief and to each other. And they were willing to suffer for their faith. And that's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter goes on to say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, it's really time to get ready. It's time to prepare yourself mentally and every other kind of way. I know this sounds extreme. I know it sounds almost like a conspiracy theory, but forewarned is forearmed. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, I hope it won't be like this, but as Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, and as he says to us, we have to determine not to live by lies. I'd like to add that this, too. And here's the real hope. God's got this. He has raised you up, Christian, for such a time as this. So we trust in his wisdom and his judgment and his sovereignty and his character and his goodness as he allows us to suffer and as he allows this old world to wind down. I mean, his grace will be sufficient for us in this coming persecution. And we have to remember that he's done so much for us in Christ and through Christ and that he really asks very little of us eternally, having done all the heavy lifting for us at the cross, that this is the least we can do for him. Yeah, I think that that, for me especially, um, after going through this uh, with you, has been one of the key things for me is to just constantly remember that that our hope is not in the human institutions. It's not in the things that this government can do or can't do for us, the, the things that the government's not going to allow us to do or allow us to do. My hope is ultimately in God and in the sovereignty of God that, you know, like you, like you say, he's raised us up for such a time as this. And, and we are to have hope in that and know that the creator of this universe put us here on this earth at this time for this purpose. And as bleak as it may seem at times and as hard as it may seem to live as a Christian, God's, God made us for a purpose on purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. You know, I, as we look at what's coming, and we even look at the world in which we live right now, you know, people will turn against us. And as I said before, people will also turn to us. People are looking for answers, and they know that the answers aren't found in woke capitalism like Nike or some of the tech companies here in Silicon Valley. They know that it's not found in the approval of a professor who's f trying to force feed you some sort of cultural Marxist doctrine. The hope is found in an eternity with Jesus Christ. For the coming persecution for the Christian church will be the best of times and the worst of times. The worst of times because it's not going to be fun. And the best of times because we will have an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with meekness, gentleness, and respect. People will come to faith. And remember this, totalitarians always fail. They always do. From the French Revolution to the Soviet Revolution to Cuba. Uh, it's, I mean, they, they never win. And miracles seem to happen. People are preserved. The church survives. It rises from the ashes like a phoenix. God makes a way forward for his people. He always has and he always will, even at the end of the age, which is yet to come. And so I, I don't want you to give up hope. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be 
worrying about every conspiracy theory du jour. Don't do it. Cling to God. Cling to what is true. Abide in Christ. Keep his word and let him do the heavy lifting. Well, Mark, that's it for today. I think we're out of time. Uh, Listeners, if you'd like further resources, you can visit us online at www.gracetoliveradio.org and click the podcast resource button. There will be podcast resources there. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question, you can email me at keith at hillside.org. I try to get back to people within 24 hours. I would love to hear from you. We will be doing a mailbag episode soon. Uh, In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about Hillside Church, where Mark and I minister, along with a couple of other really excellent men, uh, pastors, and people, uh, you can watch our worship services online at www.hillside.org forward slash services. Uh, We will be having outdoor services during this purple tier at 10.45 a.m. in English and 12.15 a.m. in English and 2 o'clock in Spanish, Spanish starting uh, outdoors uh, November 29th. Before we go, if you're listening on any particular uh, podcast platform, please like us. Please give us a five-star rating. Uh, Please leave good comments for us. We want to reach more and more people, and this will help us move up in their system. We release this podcast on Wednesdays, so we hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, subscribe. Uh, This is Keith Crosby and Mark Stickler, Out of My Mind. God bless you and God keep you. See you next time.